HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center. For more information, visit the internationalculinarycenter.com. <laughs> All right, we're bringing it in a little Skippy style. Uh, you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network and you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today we are tucking into our second uh, episode of our three-part fiber series, and we are on the line right now with Virginia Sholamidi of The Yellow Farm. Virginia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So we're going to tuck right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and I thought mm-hmm. we'd <laughs> start with a little bit of background on the Yellow Farm. You guys haven't um, been doing fiber production for the whole term of the farm. I saw from your website you used to train hunters and jumpers. What does that mean? Yes, I was uh, in my younger years. I was uh, I rode horses and was a trainer, uh, show horses for people. Um, and then uh, my children got into farming a little bit more, and sheep are a wonderful way to start taking care of animals. And I have been knitting forever. And we moved to a farm out in Delanson, and uh, I decided to sort of switch over from the horse world and the horse business to do some uh, raising of fiber animals instead. Nice. And so you guys are located um, up near Albany in New York State, correct? Yes, just a little west of Albany out in rural Schoharie County. In Schoharie County. And what is the size of your farm? We have 65 acres. Uh, A lot of it is wooded, but we have some lovely old barns and uh, a lot of pasture for grazing animals. Nice. And so what prompted, like, the the decision into into sheep, you said, was kind of looking, looking to make a change. You had an interest in fiber. So... You guys are raising uh, a heritage, couple of heritage breeds. Um, so, how did you kind of stumble into that breed selection? Well, uh, as I say, I'm I, I was a knitter from early on. My grandmother and my mother knit. 
Uh, and a friend of mine introduced me to spinning, which is taking the fiber from uh, animals and actually spinning it into the fiber you're going to be using to make a textile or knit with or weave with. And um, so I became fascinated in the types of fiber and the feels of the fiber and uh, researched quite a little bit on different breeds of sheep and started with some that were fairly common um, and lovely but ended up falling in love with a particular type of sheep who has a very individual style of fleece and a very individual look of fleece um, and they uh, are the Wensleydales and the Teeswaters. Those are the breeds that, that I am breeding at the moment. Um, and I just absolutely adore the way they look and I adore the way they feel and the fiber that they produce is extremely unusual and is uh, very coveted by hand spinners and people who are doing textured yarns and art yarns uh, and very sort of creative projects. Uh, it really lends itself to uh, to that very, very well. Can you tell us a little bit, like, um, between the two breeds that you're working with, what do they, like, what do they look like physically? What color or, I mean, is it curly or thick wool or, I mean, what, <laughs> I don't know yeah, the language. They are, so. they're, they're, sorry, they are a very large breeds, both of them, they're very closely related. They uh, originated in England um, from a very, very similar breeds and they are very large and very curly. And if folks out there have seen some pictures of my particular type of sheep, they, sheep, they have long locks that hang down the front of their face in an almost Rastafarian look. They almost look like they have dreadlocks. And the fiber that comes from them, if you allow it to grow uh, for a, a fairly long period of time, the fiber actually curls around itself in a dreadlock sort of a fashion and gives you this long, lustry, shiny, curly fleece and fiber. Uh, and that's what really pulled me to this to these particular breeds because I, I just the, the fiber is quite different than than maybe uh, a more traditional sheep that people are used to seeing, which is sort of fluffier and uh, poofier. Um, mine or not, mine are, have very definite curl in their locks. Uh, a little more unusual. Nice. And I know if people are interested in taking a peek, they should definitely visit your website, which is www.yellowfarm.us. It's kind of, I would say, the OK Cupid of um, sheep sites. You, <laughs> it, so that's a, such an interesting thing on your site there. Basically, you have pictures of a number of animals from your farm, and it looks like you're essentially pre-selling that particular animal's fleece. Now, is that, is that kind of an industry standard for this kind of smaller scale, you know, specialty breeds, or is that something that you kind of have found success in? Uh, it's something that I pretty much have had my own success in. Most of the time, people that breed sheep uh, shear them and take that raw fiber to a fair or a festival or perhaps a yarn shop or a uh, guild where people then come together and look over all of the fibers that are available and purchase their fleeces from them directly. Uh, my breeds are so rare uh, that I have found if I put them on my website with a picture that people are very happy to reserve them almost two years ahead of time for the next particular shearing because they're very difficult to get uh, and also because we keep our sheep 
uh, we, breed, we raise our sheep for the hand spinner so that their fleeces, uh, they're coated so that they don't get a lot of uh, what spinners call vegetable matter, which is just hay and grass and stones and stuff, organic stuff that would normally work its way into the fleece. If you coat them and you know that this fleece is going to go to someone who is wants to hand spin it into a yarn, they don't want to have to deal with all of that organic material that normally would be picked up by the sheep. Um, so we are very careful about the way we take care of our sheep and therefore hand spinners seek us out and are willing to wait a year, a year and a half before they get their fleece because they're not all that available um, in this country at the moment or even in England. And um, and we keep them very, very, very clean for, for the hand spinner's purpose. Wow. And this coating process, I mean, is that like walking them through like a little sheepy car wash where they're sprayed down with something? Or what does that mean, coating? No, we actually purchase or make ourselves jackets and coats. Uh, people probably oh. might be familiar with seeing horses with, with coats on. Uh, in the winter time. horses are coated. Um, our sheep are coated for a different reason. They don't need the warmth, uh, but they do need the protection of keeping stuff out of their fleece. In the winter, when they have been shorn and most of their fleece is removed, I have a heavier coat that I put on them and sometimes even line it with a a fabric liner um, to keep them a little bit warmer until they're growing more fleece. And in the summertime, I put an extremely lightweight uh, coat on them that I make myself to, so that when they go out into the pastures, they stay clean, but they also are not overheated. Uh, so when you put these coats on them, you can't just put the coat on and, and leave it. You have to check the sheep. The sheep sometimes are growing and they need different sizes or they get tangled up or they get caught on something. So it's really not a, uh, uh, it's not a, it's a very hands-on process to keep your sheep coated so that there isn't a lot of stuff that gets into that fiber and yet keep the health of the sheep so they're not overheated or, or too cold. Wow, that sounds like it would be quite a sight driving by your farm to see the sheep out on the <laughs> pasture in their little coats. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so now you have mentioned that the breeds that you're working with are fairly rare. So I'm assuming, um, you know, you can't just kind of go down to your li- local, you know, live auction market and pick one up. So how, how does your breeding program work? Where did you get your initial genetic stock? And then how do you uh, maintain your herd? Well, our our breeds, the Wensleydales and the Teeswaters, are British breeds, and because there have ne- there have never been, I, I think there was someone at one point in history that did bring some into this country, but they since perished. So there was some interest in these breeds maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and the government will not allow us to bring in live animals. Uh, at least sheep, no livestock, because of various health reasons and hoof and mouth and all that kind of stuff. So you cannot bring a Wensleydale into this country to start breeding. So what we do instead is we use um, what we call a foundation ewe, which is a, a breed, a ewe that is registered in a breed that's very similar to the one we're trying to recreate. And then we have someone collect semen from a, a purebred ram in the UK, in England, and bring the semen over, and we inseminate the 
you with the semen, the purebred semen, and then we keep track of the offspring as a percentage of how much genetic material that offspring carries. And over six generations, we hope to get up to 96%, which we're considering a purebred American Teeswater or a purebred American Wensleydale. So to answer your question, we're building genetically without having the physical animal here, which is kind of a trick, but and it takes a long time, and it's pretty costly, and <laughs> that's how we that's how we started um, how how shepherds started to breed these 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 sheep. Um, and now we're to the point where we have used quite a bit of different semen, and there are quite a few flocks within the United States, and we all have a registry where we keep track of who's related to who and and that all that kind of thing, kind of a genealogy. Uh, and we we sell within our uh, you know shepherds within the association will will sell animals if we have some that bring new genetics to each of our flocks. Wow. And the the process of, I mean, can I just kind of, is there some like website I go to and I can order a vial of Wensleydale, yes. you know, sheep semen Actually, and it just ships it right Actually, to there me? Is. Uh, it's a very, um, it's, it's fairly difficult to collect and you have to go through an awful lot of red tape and bureaucracy to have, to be approved to collect semen and bring it to this country. So there are very few people that do so. Um, and there are also very few people that do the insemination. It is not an easy process with sheep. It's a laparoscopic surgery. So it's, it's not easy for the U. It's not uh, simple, uh, and so the, the fellow that I use, there aren't very many people that do it in the country at all, but the, the people that we use, um, his name is Martin Daly, and he does have a website. It is www.toprams, T-O-P-R-A-M-S, dot com, uh, and he has a list there of all the different breeds he has collected, and he also has a tutorial sort of or explanation of what the process is like to do the artificial insemination, but it is not particularly easy. Um, you know, it's not something that you do lightly or quickly, and the semen is pretty expensive. Wow, that's fascinating. And we just have a mm. few minutes left, but I want to kind of quickly, you know, if you can take us through the life cycle of a sheep just in kind of broad, you know, entry-level biology class strokes, you know, what is the gestation period and then how long between that and your first kind of wool harvest and then how frequently can you harvest and what's like the retirement plan for uh, an animal raised for fiber production? Okay, well, first of all, let me just preface this by saying each shepherd sort of finds his own uh, style of shepherding. Uh, so uh, I will tell you our style. It is not necessarily how other folks do it. Certainly the larger breeders who have hundreds and hundreds of sheep uh, you know, maintain their flocks uh, quite differently than we do as a small farm. And again, there's quite a bit of difference between how people want to run their flock and how they handle their sheep. So what I'm going to tell you is about my style, but it is not necessarily how, it, how most people do this. Um, we, the gestation of, uh, of, of sheep is not, is, uh, five months. So we normally, our, our breed is, the ewes go into estrus. They go into a heat cycle when the days get shorter in the fall. You can, however, um, 
force their estrous cycle by chemically uh, inducing it so that you have total control over when they will lamb, and some, some people do do that. Um, so they would normally be bred probably in October, uh, perhaps November. They're put in with a ram. Uh, the ram, the ewe is only interested in the ram if she's in heat. She will only allow the, the ram to get close to her if she's actually cycling. Uh, so other than that, she wants nothing to do with him. Uh, <laughs> so we only put the, ram, put the ram in for a short period of time. And if she allows him to get close to her, then she's ready to cycle. And they'll actually mate. Um, the gestation is, again, about five months. Usually sheep have twins. It's very common. You can have many have singles. Some have triplets. Uh, some have more than triplets, but by far the vast majority, I would say, are, are singles, twins, and triplets. Um, different breeds, uh, some breeds are known for having an easy time of lambing, and some breeds are, need a little bit of help. We are always there when our lambs are born because our sheep are very rare, and we don't have very many of them, and we can't afford to lose any of our lambs, so we're always there at the birth to make sure that there are no issues. Sometimes we do have to go in and change the position of the lambs so that they come out correctly or help them once they're out. But normally lambs come out and they stand up within minutes and they nurse within minutes and it's it's an amazing sight. It really is. If you get a chance to go to a farm that's just had lambs, it's an amazing thing how quickly they stand and are up and nurse and actually can can run within hours of being born. It's they're they're lovely. Um, our sheep are shorn twice a year, which again is sort of not normal. Uh, the long wool breeds grow very fast. Their their fleece grows very quickly. So we shear in the spring and in the fall. Many other breeds of sheep only shear once a year. Sheep have to be shorn unless they're hair sheep. Man has removed um, the 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 normal uh, natural way that sheep. Remove, uh, would shed their, their fleeces, and so they have to be shorn. You can't just leave them. They will not shed wow. uh, because we have genetically altered sheep through domestication for so many years. You must shear them. Otherwise, it's not healthy. They, they will not shed um, themselves other than a very few rare heritage breeds that are left in the, in the world. But, so we shear twice a year. And our ewes are, are, we do not breed our lambs for the first year. When they're, when they're a year old, we don't breed them. We allow them to get to, to two before we, we, they have lambs themselves because we have a very slow maturing breed. And our ewes will probably give us, oh, six or seven years of lambing and then be retired or be uh, sold as fiber animals where they'll go to someone's farm and they won't have to uh, carry lambs. They will instead just produce their, their fleece and someone will spin it until they are too old to, to continue, at which point hopefully they either die peacefully on their own or someone is looking after them that cares a great deal and make sure that it's when they can no longer uh, function comfortably, that they're gently put out of their misery. Um, and that would usually be, you know, maybe 15 years or so, oh, sometimes wow. 12. And, again, it depends on the animal and the breed. Um, and, again, that's not, you know, that's the way we do it here, but there are many, many different types of management styles that don't follow that uh, particular um, style. Wow. 
Thank you. I know I pushed you through that quickly, and I, I just want to say thanks so much for <laughs> for hustling it out no for problem. us. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have uh, with you today, but we'll have to bring you back on because I would love to kind of Great. chat a little bit more. And in the meantime, if you want to see some of uh, Virginia's work and her sheep, definitely visit www.yellowfarm.us. She also has an account through Etsy if you want to purchase some items that are finished products from her. And we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will be on the line with Andy Rice of Hoggett Hill Farm. Thank you so much, Virginia. Thank you. want to be a great chef you can't learn everything from within the walls of a classroom that's why the french culinary institute has evolved into the international culinary center when you come here you don't just learn basic culinary skills you come to understand and to feel the whole culinary world you have to network you have to observe the true meaning of world-class performance you have to intern at some of the world's great restaurants at the international culinary center's campuses in new york california and italy we will expose you to the whole of the culinary world one that is evolving daily at a very high speed. The International Culinary Center offers a wide range of courses, including culinary, pastry, and bread baking, to Italian, wine, management, culinary technology, and food writing. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. All right, we are back, and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. You're listening to The Farm Report. And we are on the line with Andy Rice of Hoggett Hill Farm. Andy makes his living as a professional sheep shearer. And if I remember correctly, Andy, are we catching you in the middle of a shearing day? Yep, we, we've done about 40 some odd this morning, and uh, we're going back to it as soon as we're done with this. Wow, well, thanks. I hope that uh, it's a good break for you. Um, maybe not so restful, but uh, thanks for taking some time out. Now, before on the first half of the show, we were talking with uh, Virginia Sholamidi about um, some heritage breeds of sheep, the Wensleydale and the Teawater sheep that she raises. And I know that um, you do some work with the, the Swiss Village Foundation. Um, and we had talked a little bit before about rare breeds and how there was a kind of this two-part need for both the semen and the eggs, which is something they do at Swiss Village. Is that right? Right. They, uh, if you're trying to... Uh retain some of these genetics, uh, you need whole embryos. You can't just have the female side or the male side. So you, they uh, remove all these embryos from these very rare breeds, and they 
uh, freeze them in liquid nitrogen, and so they have them forever, and now and then they'll take one of the embryos and they'll drop it in a host sheep or a goat, depending on what it is, and then this way of checking their procedures, and all of a sudden they've got a fainting goat or a hog island sheep or whatever uh, right, out of, right out of the freezer, shall we say. Wow, that's amazing. And I mean, I think, you know, I'm guessing that's probably not the norm for most sheep born in the U.S. are, are probably coming through a more natural production. Right, but the, the thing that um, the whole idea of preserving some of these rare breeds is, the, you know, some of these breeds, for instance, like the Santa Cruz sheep that have been out on the islands in California unattended for so long, they've really developed some of their own natural parasite control and if we can use some of these genetics in with some of our modern breeds and not have to use uh, drugs to warm them, that we can develop natural controls, it be a lot better. So it's important not to lose these genetics. Well, that is one thing we didn't get to tuck into with Virginia, but I know in your role sharing that you do a lot of traveling around, you see a lot of different breeds of sheep and different farms and farm sizes. And one of the things we were curious about is, is kind of, what what are the major health concerns for sheep, and, and and what does that kind of management system look like? And just generally, I guess. Well, generally, it's um, one of the biggest problems with sheep is parasite control, most mostly internal, but some external, and um, so there's um, a, somewhat of a problem because some of the parasites are getting resistant to some of the the drugs. So they're trying to use some of the better management techniques. Uh, to control the parasites so we don't have to use as much many pharmaceuticals. Um, and this is some of the, the natural movement, but they're finding out that it really does work uh, maintaining these uh, different livestock. Yeah, you just bring in a little bit of diversity. So how you work as a professional sheep shearer. I mean, how, did, how does one get into that business? Well, I was, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was the one that everybody brought every baby bird that fell out of the nest and so on and so forth. And I worked for a zoo supplier and all kinds of stuff. And so I worked with animals uh, all my life. And then um, when I came out of the service, I had a business where I did home repairs. And there was a guy who kept hiring me. And finally, because he, he had so many houses, and finally he hired me full time to take care of his farm and repair his equipment and so on and so forth, and he had livestock, and I started working with his livestock, and then I got livestock of my own, and somebody had to shear him, so it ended up being me, and then by word of mouth, my business grew, so that's all I do full-time. Wow, and so did you have, I mean, is there any formal certification that you're required to keep, or you just kind of self, self-taught self and, and people hire you kind of based on reputation? Um, what... <clears throat> What happened was that uh, some guy sheared my sheep once, and a friend of mine came over the afterwards, and he saw these sheep, they were all cut up, and he said, you do that? And I said, no, I paid someone else to do it. And he said, you should learn that yourself. So I met uh, Bruce Clement, who was the extension agent in Cheshire County, New Hampshire at that time, and uh, Bruce and I hit it off as friends, and Bruce taught me how to shear and I, uh, by going farm to farm with him, and then uh, he was also organizing some sheep shearing schools at Cornell, and so I did eight shearing schools there with uh, the top shears in the world from New Zealand that would come over. And after that, it's just doing the numbers. And 
so you learn to go, uh, and then people hear about you and word of mouth, and you're just traveling further and further. Wow. So let's talk about what it looks like when you are, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're packing your car to go on a job. What type of equipment do you need? And is there like a, a, a uniform or things that you need to wear or have on your body as part of the job? Um, basically, I, in my truck, I have uh, some metal panels, which uh, so I can create a pen if the person doesn't have one to, can, to hold the sheep. Then I... Um, uh, in terms of uh, my equipment, it's all equipment that comes either from New Zealand, Australia, or, or England. Uh, most of the stuff in this country isn't is just as is not the quality as these countries that have you know a lot more sheep than we do. And uh, but I wear jeans and uh, for the most part in terms of clothing. But I do wear funny little wool felt shoes that are made in New Zealand or Australia, and they're shearing shoes. Um, sometimes I wear shearing pants that are just tighter than jeans, so there's no extra material to get in your way. And then when you're, when you're actually at the farm, you set up, so you said you, if they don't have a, like a pen, a smaller area to contain the animal and, and give you space to work, you create one. And then how does the shearing process work? I mean, one animal comes in at a time, and... and like I'm sure there's a special kind of hold and technique, and maybe you can just kind of paint us an audio picture of of that process. Sure, um, the system I use is is developed in New Zealand, and they perfect it and perfect it uh, so that the shears get more efficient. And if you've seen the movies like the Sundowners or the Thornbirds, they make a big deal about doing 200 sheep a day. Well. They've got it down now where senior open shears in New Zealand do 350 to 500 a day. Wow. Uh, the world's record is about 700 a day, which is, you know, 30 some odd seconds apiece. Um, and the system is, is fairly simple. The shearer grabs the sheep, sits it on its butt. Um, your shearing machine, if you're right handed, is hanging on your right side. You shear the belly, and then you work your way onto the, <clears throat> the left hind leg, shearing that off. You do the neck, you lay the animal on its side, you do the left side, then you work your way around to the other side, and uh, it's called the whipping side, and finish up, let it go, and go grab another one. Um, and it's just uh, every sheep is done exactly the same. The, the pattern is very precise. Every stroke or blow is all uh, a part of this pattern, and that's where it takes shears a long time to learn. In New Zealand, they say it takes 10 years or 10,000 sheep to learn how to do this. Wow. That's like the Malcolm Gladwell magic 10,000 10, number. 10, 000, you do anything for 10,000 hours, and you're, you're a genius at it. But um, <laughs> um, So, uh, well, I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, with, the sh- with the shearing, um, if people want to check it out, you can visit the Heritage Radio Network Facebook page. I did post a video of you doing it. And one of the things I thought was so amazing from the video is just how calm and relaxed the animals seemed. And I'm sure that has in large part a lot to do with, with your handling skills. But what are, I mean, what are the things that farmers need to do to prepare the animals for shearing? And then does it bother them at all? I mean, can you, do you get a sense of, uh, of the process from, from their perspective? Well, the the whole trick is to keep the animal comfortable and relaxed. And the better a shearer gets, the more relaxed the animal is. 
And when people see me shear a sheep and they say, gee, that animal was really quiet and relaxed, it has really nothing to do with the sheep. It's, it has to do with the shearer um, and how you control them. And uh, whether the sheep like it or not, it's hard to say. Um, they most probably feel very different when they losing a coat that was any place from four pounds to, you know, twenty some odd pounds, depending on the breed and the size of the sheep. Um, but they, there's some confusion within the flock because then the sheep don't recognize each other, and a lot of times the babies don't even recognize their mother. Um, and within a few hours, they figure it all out and everything is fine. Well, it's interesting because I think often we think of animals as, as being uh, slightly less visual um, in, the, in their recognition. I mean, I do anyway. So that, that does sound like it might be a little confusing. One of the other things I read, I was looking through the Vermont Cooperative Extensions, kind of what to do before you call a sheep shearer. And they, they recommended uh, withholding food and or water for a period of time before shearing. And, and why, would, why would you want to do that? Well, um, there's a there's a few reasons. First of all, what goes in must come out, and uh, so you're trying to keep the board clean. You're trying to keep the fleece clean, so you don't want the animals urinating or defecating, you know, while you're you're sharing. But uh, you know, it's like, would you do an aerobics class on a full stomach? No, you'd be a lot more comfortable if your stomach was empty when you start exercising, and it's just not healthy for a sheep to have a full belly when you shear it. So that's why we suggest that they remove uh, food and water. And, you know, 18, 24 hours uh, is fine. And uh, it doesn't bother the animal a bit. And they have quite a large septic tank in there. It's not empty. It's just there's less in it, so to speak. And um, it's much, they say it's better for the sheep, it's better for the shearer. But that's one of the things. There's a, there's a whole list of things that a shearer expects and that the sheep are readily uh, uh, available. As, you know, shearers don't get paid to chase sheep. They get paid to, paid to shear sheep. So they, they should be right there, readily available. They should be dry. There should be adequate people to, you know, manage the fleece and keep the shearing board clean. And, and uh, the better you, you do that, the higher quality the product is that you produce. Yeah, that was something I noticed from the video. I mean, kind of like when I go to get my hair cut, there's, there's usually a, a man or a woman running around kind of sweeping up the, the clipped ends and the same kind, of, same kind of deal for the sheep. You had a little helper there. Um, so we learned from Virginia in the last segment that because of the des- domestication process of sheep over the last, you know, I'm just throwing a number out there, 100 years, that you actually have to shear most varieties of sheep because they wouldn't kind of go through a natural shedding process on their on their own. And I just wanted to, fo- you know, follow up on that point and 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 ask, you know, how what like what's the bare minimum or the maximum that someone would be shearing a particular animal? Well, basically, the way the what happened was that the sheep shed normally, and as mad bred them. Uh, I mean, it's the shed just like a dog or a cat. And as mad bred the sheep to have more and more wool, at some point in that process, then the sheep stopped shedding, and then they had to figure out a shear them. And a sheep today has more than 10 times the wool on it than it did as a wild animal. And there are a few breeds that still will shed partially, uh, and then there's some hair breeds that will shed as just a, like any other mammal will shed. But um, it's, it's, and 
the different wool on the different sheep depends on how often they're shorn, and depending on what you're doing with the wool will make a difference. For instance, if you have a, a breed that grows an eight-inch fleece, then that's great for a hand spinner. They would love it eight inches long, and so once a year you would shear it. But if you were going to use that breed to sell your wool commercially, it's too long for the machinery. So you would shear it twice a year because then you get two four-inch clips that the machinery could handle to spin into yarn. Okay. Use that breed. That makes sense. Now, historically, what would, I mean, it looked like from the video that you were using um, electric clippers, and I'm just wondering, you know, how some of that, that tool has evolved over over the past century. I mean, was it originally, I'm assuming, a knife, and then it transitioned to an electric tool, or? Um, originally, they used some very crude stone and bone knives. And then most of the Western world went to what we call a set of blades, which looks like a crude pair of scissors. And there are a lot of blade shears still today. A good blade shearer can shear 200 sheep in a day. Um, Kevin Ford from Charlemagne, Massachusetts, is a full-time professional shearer, just like I am. Uh, He prefers to use blades. Uh, I use a machine, which was developed during the Industrial Revolution when they were doing things in more and more mechanical ways of, of doing things. But it's no different than, you know, uh, you can cut a, a tree down with an axe or you can cut a tree down with a chainsaw. It comes down either way. It just uh, depends on which piece of machinery you prefer. Um, some people like using axes. Some people like using chainsaws. doesn't matter. You still get firewood. Still get firewood, and you still need skill to, to manage either tool, I guess. So we well, are <laughs> we're so, just... Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I had a, a, a chief in the Navy who taught me one of the, what I always say, one of the greatest lessons of life. A typewriter cannot misspell. So... <laughs> has to do with the operator. Very true, very true. Well, we're just about out of time, but I wonder before we go, um, what, are, what do you think the future of, of sheep shearers is going to look like? Is this a profession that is on the decline, or is it increasing? I mean, what's demand, and, and what do you see in the, in the future for sheep shearers? Well, they've, they've tried to come up with mechanical ways of shearing sheep. There was a machine in Australia that was a computer, laser, whatever. Um, took five minutes to get the sheep in the machine, and it only could shear 60% of the sheep. And the machine cost millions and millions of dollars. didn't work. The Chinese have been trying to come up with an injection that the wool falls out. Uh, it's basically like uh, when somebody has chemotherapy and their hair falls out. It's just a... Uh, chemical stress. Um, but you can't do it on animals that are bred and so on and so forth. So they really haven't come up with a new system. And it's as long as they're sheep, you're going to have to have uh, people who know how to shear them. That makes sense. I think it's also kind of nice, nice to hear. So any recommendations for someone who, after hearing this interview, will be compelled to become a sheep shearer? Where should they start? Um, basically, with a... The best way to start is most of the extension services have a, a local sheep shearing school in the spring, and uh, you learn how to turn the machine on and off and how the combs and cutters work and how to handle a sheep a little. And then from there, you just need lots of practice. And if you can get teamed up with someone like myself who will teach you most of the skills, 
and give you the opportunity. And, and the problem is you have to find people who are willing to let you learn. Um, you know, the sheep can get nick or cut, and they, they heal up just fine. It's not a big deal. But the only way to learn is by shearing sheep. And uh, so it's, it's important that people let a youngster or somebody new learn on their sheep. Uh, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, that, I mean, I definitely used to, when I was a poor college student, get my hair cut at the local, um, you know, haircutting school, which had mixed results, but, but, but was kind of good for me at the time. Andy, thank you so much for um, taking some time out of what I understand is a pretty busy day to share some info with us. If people want to get in touch with you or follow up, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way is to reach me uh, through email. And my email address is Shearwool, S-H-E-A-R-W-O-O-L, at Hotmail.com. Awesome. Well, thanks to Andy and thanks to Virginia for being guests on the show today. also want to send a special thanks to my producer, Mary Jean Packer, and uh, my engineers today, Joe and Jack, double teaming it in the Heritage Radio Network uh, studio. You can always find archived episodes of The Farm Report on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Thursday at 1 p.m. And if you have any questions for the show, you can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.